still fits after all these years. Or maybe I never lost that freshman 15. I don't know if you caught it in there. I have a picture. I don't know if you may recognize someone in that group. Boom, look at that handsome young devil right there. Next picture. Oh, yeah. For four years, I was a part of that ensemble, the Indiana Wesleyan University Chorale. We sang all over the eastern side of the state, or the country, Indiana, Pennsylvania, Florida. Made it all the way to Carnegie Hall one year in New York City. That was a lot of fun. A lot of great memories singing with that group. I joined the group largely because of the guy that conducted it. I don't know if you noticed him at the bottom of the screen. He was the one moving around wildly and waving his hands. I have a picture with him, uh, with me. Yes, there he is. Uh, Dr. Todd Guy, the best way I can describe it is uh, he's kind of like Michael Scott from The Office, just except he knows a lot about music. We always called him Prof. Prof is what we always called him, and he took music, he took especially choral music, so seriously. It would always stick with me. He had this motto that was the difference between average and excellence was details. And in rehearsal, to get a song, to get it to that caliber, we would always just be rehearsing these little portions of music over and over again until we had mastered it. Sometimes it felt like Prof was just getting fixated on this little section forever. Sometimes it was the dynamics. The dynamics in music are the loudness or the softness in music. He wanted to make sure that there was a clear contrast in the volume at different sections of the song because it adds variety because if it's a monotone, it just gets really boring. Sometimes Prof would get onto us because we'd be clipping the notes in fast-paced songs like the one you just saw, we had a tendency to not give the notes the very, their fullest value. Notes have different values in music, and sometimes in our enthusiasm or our lack of concentration, we'd either cut them too short or we wouldn't sing them long enough like they're supposed to. There were these little details, because the difference between average and excellence was details. This might sound trivial to most people, but not to Dr. Guy, because he knew that all those details made music what it is. Music is more than just the enjoyable sequence of sounds. Music has textures, and it often it tells a story, and it, and it rises and it falls, and it contains tension and dissonance. It has climaxes and resolutions. It has harmony and unison. And the best stories, they have variety, and they have, they have color, and they have energy, and they, lie, and they have life, and they utilize movement and dynamics and notes and even rests. Do you know what rests are in music? If you've ever been in a band or a choir, you know what rests are. In music, the notes, they represent the sounds, right? The different pitches that we sing. But rests represent the sounds that we don't hear. There's symbols printed in the music that indicate the absence of sound. When the composer has elected that he doesn't want any sound here, or where the musicians are supposed to cease singing or playing. And if all this music theory is going right over your head, it did whenever I was in school, my music degree nearly killed my GPA. We don't think about it very much, but rests, this absence of sound, the cessation of music, actually makes music what it is. 
Because without rests, all you would have is just this unbroken noise. And so the next time that you listen to a song, I want you to pay attention to the rests or the moments where in the song, the songwriter or the musician has elected to not make any noise. And sometimes it's instantaneous, and sometimes it's just a chance for the singer to breathe. But other times, they're longer, or different voices or instruments will just cut out entirely. Or sometimes the drummer just needs to go crazy on the bridge while everyone else is silent. These rests are they're strategically placed. They're deliberate, and they're intentional, and they're important. Amateur musicians learning notation and rhythm, they tend to think that the notes come first and the rests come second, but the rests are just as important as the notes when it comes to making music. When you think of your life right now, the song of your life. Do you prioritize the notes or the rests? Can I tell you what I tend to do? I tend to place a lot of value in the notes, the things that I know I need to get done in a given day or a week, my responsibilities, my work, my commitments, my job, my obligations. Rest, on the other hand, the cessation of all of those things, I often just push to the back burner. No rest for the weary, I often joke with people. Rest doesn't bring home the bacon. If I rest, I probably will pay for it later. Have you ever felt like that? We often don't give the rests in our lives their full value, do we? They're printed in the score. They're printed in the sheet music, but we either clip them. We don't give them their weight or their value, or we just completely ignore them. We want to get on to the next note. Often, I get that the project is the next note. Those are the famous last words that I say, because the notes are what people want to come and hear. The notes are what are expected of us, right? The notes are what the music's all about, or is it? Maybe music isn't just about the notes. Maybe it's about the rest, too, and so are our lives. Otherwise, it's just unbearable noise. Eugene Peterson wrote a letter to his congregation 35 years ago in 1988. It sounds like it could have been written today. He says, One day a week I stand before you and call you to worship God, and the conviction behind the act is that time is holy. But how often do you hear anyone say so? More likely you hear time is money, and as with money, you mostly feel like you don't have enough of it. On occasion when you have time for which nothing is scheduled, you will kill time. Odd, isn't it? We have more leisure hours per person per, per year as a country than anyone ever guessed 100 years ago, but we are not leisurely, we are not relaxed, we are anxious, we are in a hurry, and the anxiety and the hurry ruin intimacy and sabotage our best intentions in faith, hope, and love, the three actions in which most of us set out to do our best. This morning, in the remaining time that we have, I want to talk about giving rests its full value in the rhythm of our lives. And I couldn't think of a better time when many of us are in the wilderness, overwhelmed and anxious, in a hurry, tired, busy, surviving, because that's exactly where God decided to introduce it. The first time humans are told to Sabbath is in Exodus. While this isn't the first time we've ever heard about Sabbath in the Bible, it's the first time that humans are explicitly told to Sabbath. 
The Israelites have left Egypt, they passed through the Red Sea, and they've been in the wilderness for a month when whatever provisions or rations they procured from Egypt had become depleted. Finding and buying food was not an option, and the thought quickly crosses their minds of this real possibility of starving to death in the desert. But it's more than just a thought, because they can feel it in their stomachs, the growling and the groaning. They can hear it in the bleeding of their livestock, which are growing thinner by the hour. They can hear it coming from their children, wondering where supper is. And as this hysteria reaches a boiling point, a new idea emerges, this idea of returning back from whence they came, retracing their steps and undoing the exodus. If only the Lord would have killed us back in Egypt, they say. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted, but now you, Moses, have brought us into this wilderness to starve to death. Only a month being removed from being slaves in Egypt, and they're already rewriting their history. They're misremembering their time in Egypt because scarcity in the wilderness suddenly makes their memories of bondage change from post-traumatic nightmares into daydreams. Satisfaction and oppression becomes preferable over starvation and freedom. Oh, friends, those people want to go back to the glory days of slavery. Back in Egypt, the Israelites were tasked with making bricks in the brickyard. Maybe you know this. Now, bricks were not invented to be concentration camps camps to incarcerate Jews. Rather, brickyards already existed long before the Hebrews ever got there. But the work was regarded as the lowest of the low in terms of Egyptian society, so that's why it always qualified as slave labor. The Egyptians were averse to hard labor. All to say that in the brickyards, it was a necessary part of Egypt's economy and industry. And if you know anything about ancient Egypt, it's likely their impressive buildings, their magnificent architecture whose feats of engineering still mystify us today. And if there's no building other in Egypt that you probably know, it's the Great Pyramid in Giza, right? One of the oldest seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, the pyramids likely pre-existed the Israelites ever getting there, but it's this continual construction project throughout the empire that necessitated bricks, and Pharaoh's infrastructure needed, needed those bricks to be maintained. Cities still needed to be built, and he knew the cheap labor force that he wanted to employ. And as the Israelites are romanticizing life back in the brickyards, Yahweh comes and he says he's preparing an appetizer of the promised land. Exodus says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And if anyone needs evidence of grace in the Old Testament, here it is. Because instead of punishing the children of Israel for their lack of faith, God decides to rain food onto them in the desert. And echoing the morning and evening cycle of the creation narrative, the Lord creates this banquet in the desert. In the evenings, there's these brown-feathered birds or quails that would be blown in by a mighty wind, easy prey for the Israelites to capture. And in the morning, as, the, as far as the eye could see, there was this white frost that was covering the surface of the desert floor. And the best renderings that we have of the original Hebrew is that of this thin, crisp substance flaky like a pie crust, but not individual flakes like cereal, but a single sheet covering the entire ground. And in the end, we, like the people, we just don't know what it was. And they didn't know what it was either. And they called it as such. They called it manna, or literally whatness. What is this? But it tasted like a wafer made of honey. 
given the luxury of finely made wafers instead of bread and the rarity of honey. This is basically saying the manna was the most delicious food any of them have ever tasted. This ain't no rice cake or a communion wafer. It tasted like the promised land flowing with milk and honey. And each day, each individual family was tasked to gather as much as their family needed. And in doing so, Israel was given new jobs, new work outside of Egypt through which they will wait until they get to the promised land, this intermediary job. And no longer were they making bricks for Pharaoh. They were now participating and gathering their daily bread from God around the camp. God wanted them to participate in his work of providing for them. God wanted to partner with them. But as they're doing this work throughout the week, on the sixth day, on the eve of the last day of the week, Moses has some special instructions for the Israelites. Gather a double portion. Because tomorrow on the seventh day, there will be no food on the ground. The kitchens of heaven will be temporarily closed. Why? Because this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow will be a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath day set apart for the Lord. And don't be anxious about that extra portion you're saving. It won't spoil or rot. God will make sure that he will still provide for you in advance that you can have a Sabbath rest. And don't go looking for any food outside your tent tomorrow morning because there ain't going to be any. The forecast isn't calling for manna until early Monday morning. It'll be right there. God is taking away the manna on the seventh day, but he's giving them rest. The Lord wants them to enjoy ceasing from their work. He wants them to pause, to stop from what they're normally doing. This is what Sabbath actually means. Sabbath is closer to this discontinuation of something more than relaxing from something. And in creation, God didn't need to, a short breather. What it means is that God ceased from his work. He stopped what he was doing. And this is what the Lord wants them to do. Have an abrupt end to their labor. Don't do any of your normal labor, but always do things that will give you life. And so before we ever get to the Mount Sinai, before we ever codify this into a law, before it was ever chiseled into tablets of stone as part of the, one of the Big Ten, Sabbath is introduced to the Israelites. And as I see it, Sabbath couldn't wait till they get to the promised land. If you're waiting to rest in the promised land, you're going to miss out on this. But Sabbath needed to come after they were quickly liberated from Egypt because apparently a part of slavery in Egypt was this lack of rest. There's something critical to understanding Sabbath by seeing it through the lens of the Exodus. And we have a tendency to underestimate Sabbath or mispractice it because we detach it from the Exodus. Because if you take this exodus out of the Sabbath, all you get is just a day off. In the wilderness and between Egypt and the promised land, the Lord wanted this now free nation to incorporate into the rhythms and routines, the same rhythms and routines that God himself enjoyed since the dawn of time. And can I tell you two reasons why I think God would do that? I'm going to do it anyway, regardless of what you tell me. Sabbath first is an act of resistance against the ghosts of Pharaoh in the brickyard. We're told in the opening chapters of Genesis that in six days God created everything in the heavens and the earth. 
Ten times God spoke and God said, and life appeared out of nothingness. God created and God worked. But after the six days, on the seventh day, the last day of the week, after the heavens and earth were completed, you know this verse in Genesis, on the seventh day, God finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, because this is the day that he rested from all of his work in creation. Some of us mistakenly think that God didn't create anything on the seventh day, but in fact, he did. He created rest. Old Testament scholar John Walton makes this compelling argument that God's Sabbath on the seventh day is not God withdrawing from the world and its operations. Sabbath isn't God clocking out after a week's worth of work, patting himself on the back, and disengaging from ever working in creation again. That would be called deism. Rather, God is ceasing from his work, and this represents his taking his place at the helm of creation and resting like on a throne, like a king ready to rule. So God resting is not disengagement, it's actually engagement. Because in the ancient Near East, the gods would rest in their temples. And in a world populated with a whole host of gods, each vying for top dog in their respective pantheon, the true sign of supremacy was when a god could rest in their temple. But to rest in their temple is not the same thing that we think about. It's not resting and reclining on your lazy boy watching the Cornhuskers on Saturday afternoons, nor is it sipping fruity drinks on a beach somewhere. Resting for the gods was this idea that they're on their thrones and they're ruling and reigning. So divine rest is not disengagement, it's engagement. And it's not relaxation, it's ruling. And when the ancient Israels would hear Genesis 2 in church, they didn't hear God. God taking a well-deserved vacation after making the world. It was God resting on his throne on the seventh day after creating everything. And like a king, he's ready to rule. And each week when the Sabbath would roll around, it's a time to remember that Steve, he is still on that throne. Do you hear the difference? This is why an omnipotent, all-powerful deity would need to rest in the first place. So Walton argues the seventh day is not some theological appendix to the creation narrative. It expresses the purpose of creation and the cosmos. On the seventh day, we discover that God has been working to achieve rest. God is not only, he's not only set up the cosmos for the people to have a place to live, it's a temple where he's going to rest and rule. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hands, his wonders wrought. But wait for it, there's more. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. And so when we get back to the Exodus, in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of scarcity, when there is no food, Sabbath is a time to remember that our creator God, the God who spoke to the chaotic primordial waters and separated them eons ago, who now rested afterwards, he's still in control and he's still on the throne and he can make oases in the desert and banquets fall from the sky. Sabbath is a countercultural message. So Sabbath, I think, is this act of resistance against the anxiety and the fear and the control, these ghosts of Pharaoh that haunt us from our time in the brickyard. Because the brickyard is less of this place and it's more of a mindset because it's in the brickyard where you're told to believe that you yourself must earn 
everything. You must earn your keep. You need to burn that midnight oil, else you won't survive. You need to work your fingers to the bone, burn bridges with your spouse and your family and your children and your co-workers and whoever. Break your body, burn out your soul, and lose your spirit because it's up to you and you alone to provide for yourself, else you'll starve in the wilderness. But Sabbath comes along and it says, no, no, God is the one who has provided for me even in the wilderness. And he said so himself. Sabbath then puts our theology where it ought to be in our hearts. Sabbath says, I have cooperated to the best of my abilities throughout the course of the week, and cooperating with what God is doing. I have earned my daily bread from God, and now when I Sabbath, I will cease from that work. I will cease from collecting my daily bread. And I'm saying that I firmly believe that God is still on the throne, and he's fully capable of sustaining me for this temporary pause. I won't go looking for daily bread on the Sabbath. I trust the Lord. My soul's been anchored in the Lord. Sabbath is a declaration that we believe God will provide for us and sustain us so that we don't have to relentlessly work, that we don't have to overwork even in the uncertainty of the wilderness. Because all I've had needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, my Lord, unto thee. And instead, we can step aside and we can rest and we can worship. That's why over the course of time, Sabbath became a day set aside to worship for the Jewish people, worshiping their God on the throne, the God of the universe who still cares for us more than the birds of the air and the lilies in the field. Sabbath is a time where we boldly worship in one form or another. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free for his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. Ruth Haley Barton says it this way, when we think of Sabbath only in terms of rest and replenishment, we are selling it short. In Jewish tradition, Sabbath contains a strong element of resistance to the prevailing culture and to the gods within that culture. As allegiance is proclaimed to the God who is our God, their practice of Sabbath keeping was and is an act of resistance against a culture that brainwashes us into thinking that good things can only come through unceasing determination, tireless human effort, and always being plugged in. One day a week, we take ourselves out of the soupy mess this potent combination has us swimming in. God is putting a fence between his people and Egypt, and he's trying to keep us from going back to the anxiety and the scarcity and fear and despair and competition and protest that haunts us from our time in the brickyard. The mentality of the brickyard God is trying to free us from. He's trying to break this addiction because work isn't the problem and vacations and days off aren't the solution. It's the ghosts of Pharaoh that is in our work that are. And Sabbath is a temporary period weekly where we refuse to do what Pharaoh tells us to do. It's an act of resistance to that culture, to that anxiety, all from the brickyard. So to Sabbath, you have to find your Pharaoh and you got to stick it to him. You have to find that place in your work, that source of all pressure in your job. Because not all your job drives you crazy, just some of it does. And where it is in your job and in your responsibilities, whatever is creating for you all that tension, that most soul-crushing weight for 24 hours, you refuse to participate in anything resembling that activity. It's an act of resistance. It's a line in the sand, and we're saying, we will not be owned, we will be free. 
Wayne Mueller in his book, Sabbath, poignantly points out that if we do not allow for a rhythm of rest in our overly busy lives, something else will create Sabbath for us. Whether it's illness or accidents or burnout, if we don't give Sabbath its full value in our lives, something else will. Sabbath is a resistance against the ghosts of Pharaoh in the brickyard. One more thing, Sabbath is a restoration and renewal of who we are. This is the part we've likely heard over and over again, but I fear we never actually get to this. We need regular, routine, rhythmic pauses in the midst of our work to refresh and remind us what it means to be truly human. To be fully human is to be made in the image and likeness of God, and it means to be fully alive. Exodus 31 says this, Tell the people of Israel, Be careful to keep my Sabbath day, for the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant between me and you from generation to generation. And for six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he stopped working and was refreshed. This is the first time that we're ever told that the Sabbath was a sign. I was taught that signs are not things that you just look at. They're things that you see through to find something bigger because signs point to something. So when it says that God was refreshed, the word literally means God exhaled, as if God took a breath, that there was this restorative component to God resting, a replenishing, rejuvenating aspect of it, if you will, that God was replenishing his soul. And so the creation of the world is like this quickening inhale, and the, ex- and the Sabbath is this exhale, and all creation moves in this rhythm of inhale and exhale, and, but without the Sabbath exhale, life-giving inhale is impossible. So the Sabbath occurs to us then as this portal to see and experience this divine exhale, a way to see into the world that we're headed, which is the promised land, a world of abundance and hospitality and optimism and blessedness. But we'll never see it if we can't create for ourselves the margin to see it. But to experience it here and now in the wilderness, we get a taste of the promised land if we want to, to taste and be restored by this appetizer from the promised land, what it means to be fully alive, fully human Again, rest is when we cease from what is necessary and embrace what replenishes life. Early on in Jesus' ministry, he and his ragtag group of disciples were walking through the field. And the disciples, they start plucking the heads of grain for a midday snack when a group known as the Pharisees or these religious conservatives or these guardians of the law, they accuse the disciples of sinning. They believe that they're desecrating the Sabbath by blatantly disobeying God's instructions where he said to not work on the Sabbath. But Jesus steps in and he says, you've missed the point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not made for people, but people for the Sabbath. Sabbath was intended to restore human life, not take it away. On a different occasion, Jesus will ask them point blank, which is more lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Jesus received more hostile criticism from Sabbath keepers than from any single class of people. Because this is what we get so wrong about the Sabbath so often, is that we want to fill it with a bunch of rules. But we're missing the reality when we do that. We miss the life-giving aspects of the Sabbath. The Pharisees, they drag down Sabbath into a series of unnecessary laws, a list of do's and don'ts. But this is a different kind of bondage. But the Lord of the Sabbath, he comes along and he shows us that what we can do, and that's anything that gives us life, liberating us to be free to enjoy the Sabbath. 
And so a period of time, ideally a whole day, do something to temporarily ignore any oughts in your life and revel in what brings you life. That's how Mark Buchanan in his book, The Rest of God, articulates it. He says, rest is a reprieve from doing what you ought to do, even though the list of oughts is indefinitely long and never done. Oughts are tyrants and they're noisy and surely chronically dissatisfied. Sabbath is the day you trade places with them. They go onto the salt mine and you go out dancing. You get to shuck the half-twos and lay hold of the get-twos. Rest is doing something restoratively different than what we regularly do. And it's doing what we were originally created to do, which is to be fully alive. Sabbath is an activity that should give you life and not take it away. And when you think about your life, what comes to mind that gives you life, that restores your soul or makes you feel human again? And before you quickly name it and lay hold of it, I want you to think really hard about it because it may not be necessarily what what we think gives us life. It may not be what the world advertises that gives us life. It may not actually be going on vacation because some of you go on vacation and you come back and you're more tired than when you originally left. It may not be the hobby you're presently thinking. Sometimes our hobbies are just more pleasant chores in disguise. It may not be retirement because in retirement you still got stuff to do. It ought to be something that you don't get paid for that we leave at the desk on Monday morning. This isn't to say that those things are bad. They're just not Sabbath, because every Sabbath might be a day off, but not every day off is a Sabbath. Don't get stumped looking for a biblical step-by-step instruction manual for the Sabbath, because you'll never find it. And don't make one up for somebody else, because that's what the Pharisees did. Just do what the Bible says, which is to keep it. And I believe God trusts us to work out how we'll actually Sabbath. God assumes that we'll figure it out. There's a creative agency that God entrusts into us. God puts in a lot of faith for us to figure this out, that we'll know what gives us life and that we'll lean into it. Don't wait for someone to tell you how to Sabbath. Don't compare your Sabbath to anybody else's. Your Sabbath is unique between you and God. Follow the Spirit's leading. And when we, we practice ceasing in the way God intends, we will touch into the very ground of our being. Barton, again, says it this way, to experience ourselves cherished for who we are while not achieving anything or doing anything to earn the air we breathe is a revelation each and every Sabbath. As we allow our energies and soul to be replenished as human beings, not like robots that have batteries that need to be recharged or toy soldiers that need to be rewound, but instead as persons, we are able to re-engage our work as energized partners with God like we were in the garden. This is the close, the time for the close. Every time I've heard a sermon preached about the Sabbath, it's wound up sounding like a sales pitch. I hope mine hasn't. I don't get any commission on what I'm doing this morning. In fact, I'd be the first to admit that I haven't quite figured out how to give Sabbath its full value in my life. I wrestle with how to Sabbath well. I want to clip the rests when I know I ought to give them their full value. I listen to the ghosts of Pharaoh more times than I want to admit. I sometimes settle for a subhuman rhythm instead of a fully human one. 
I was raised, like many of you, with a strong desire and instinct to work hard and to have a solid work ethic, to strive for achievements and success. Don't be lazy. Be a doer. Always give it the old college try and be responsible. Those are all well and good, but I also was someone who has failed repeatedly to tap into the reservoir of grace, the oasis of blessedness, and I've paid for it several times, friends. Because something keeps me from taking the plunge. Something keeps me from trying to fully integrate Sabbath into my routine, from trusting God fully. I'm just like those Israelites. And they're usually good reasons or legitimate excuses. But what ends up happening time and again is I find myself overworked and burnout and exhausted and tired. And maybe you've been there too. Eugene Peterson writes, If Sabbath is so easy and simple, why do we find it so hard? Because the world is in a conspiracy to steal our Sabbath. It is a pickpocket kind of theft, not an armed robbery, and we aren't aware of it until long after its occurrence. If the world can get rid of Sabbath, it has us. And when it does, it it will do what it always does with us. Because after a few years of Sabbath breaking, we are passive consumers of expensive trash and anxious hurriers after fancy pleasures. We lose our God and our dignity at the same time. Friends, I want to tell you this morning that I'm not giving up. That I'm going to still search for it. And I'm determined to find Sabbath. I'm going to experiment until I've got it because I want that healthy rhythm in my life so I can be fully alive. And rest assured, I ain't going to rest until I find Sabbath. Maybe we got to work as just as hard as we do throughout the week at finding our Sabbath. As the band comes forward, I'll close with this final word from the author of Hebrews. God's promise of entering his rest still stands, for this good news has been announced to us just as it was to them. So there is a special rest waiting for the people of God, for all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest.